I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. This is a special podcast exclusive edition of the program. I'm delighted to welcome Tom Rogan to the program. Uh, he, of course, is the moderator of the McLaughlin Group uh, and a columnist. You can find his work um, across the web. Uh, Tom, do you want to let our listeners know where they can find you most reliably? Yes. Well, thank you for having me. I think the first place probably would be my homepage, which is www.tomroganthinks.com. And I basically put all of my various, uh, you know, writings, etc. cetera there. Um, yeah. So that's probably the best baseline. Excellent. Excellent. So you can find him there. You can find him at the Washington Examiner. And of course you can find him on the McLaughlin group as the moderator and chair. Tom, we've had some discussions offline on this. Um, in this age of uh, public health catastrophe pandemic, um, which has been analogized to war, how would you define conservatism today? Um, what is conservatism in the age of Donald Trump and Boris Johnson? Well, I mean, I, you know, it's interesting because you do see the familiar strains of thought that conservatives who might otherwise be opposed to um, Donald Trump, uh, you know, enjoy in a sense, which would be uh, things like judicial appointments, um, deregulation, you know, tax reform, increased military spending. Of course, there are other areas which are more concerning to people, which I think uh, to those kind of conservatives, which would be the significant growth of uh, deficit spending and a, 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 you know, quite overt unwillingness or interest in addressing the entitlement state. Um, and, you know, perhaps some of the more callous language um, and, and, and narrow uh, targeting, mobilization that is employed by the president and, and is the case to a degree with Boris Johnson. Although I would suggest one of the more striking elements of Boris Johnson's rise is his um, recentering of the British Conservative Party into a, a narrative of, you know, quite openly, um, you know, bigger government, as much as there are some ideas to reform the civil service, for example, in the United Kingdom, uh, which is essentially the, the, the public uh, employment, the, the agents, you know, the, the government um, facility for running all the apparatus of the state. There is a, you know, there has been and there is planned very significant investments uh, in public spending uh, in areas that uh, Boris Johnson was able to to win parliamentary seats away from Labour for the first time in 50 years in, in the December 2019 election. So there are these various currents and it's kind of hard to tie, tie down in simple lines, I suppose. Sure, that's a good overview. What I've wanted to specify here is social conservatism seemed to hijack the American movement, the Republican Party, in the attraction of Donald Trump, um, first the amusement, but ultimately the exploitation of Trump uh, to achieve the judicial appointments and namely what some conservatives have rallied for um, in this country which is abortion. Um, and um, I mean, that's a huge issue. 
Um, but when you see the protesters of the state capitals who want to protest science, who want to protest um, to some extent the government overreach, um, there seems to be a thread that it's not just about Roe v. Wade or abortion. There is a set of issues, and I'm wondering if if it's a, it's a, if it's an understandable formula what American conservatism or Trumpism has evolved into. How do you make sense of it? Well, you know, I think it's a mixture of of the old and the new in the sense you identify quite correctly. There is that continuing and significant element of the conservative movement that is really primarily motivated by uh, issues surrounding abortion, although I think there is a recognition um, you know, on, on the part of the social conservative movement that the uh, issue of gay marriage uh, is one that, you know, frankly, on their part has been lost, that, 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 that it's not worth necessarily spending political capital on that fight uh, or pushing it through the courts because uh, of the um, Supreme Court's affirmation of gay marriage, but also because of, you know, society's attitude, um, younger conservatives' attitude as well to, to some of those issues, that even if they are religious and oppose gay marriage, they've grown up with openly gay friends. And, you know, it, it's not that their understanding is different from uh, their parents in that regard. Although you do see, for example, a continuing conservative um, concern, uh, including a judicial concern over issues related to, for example, you know, access to restrooms by um, transgender individuals, things in that sort of new frontier. Um, but I also think there is this sustaining element um, in the kind of conservative intelligentsia. Uh, there is a, I think, appreciation uh, for the um, Republican Senate Majority Leader McConnell and President Trump's pushing of these federal judiciary appointments, uh, not simply in that religious or social conservative sense, but also and, and quite frankly, more importantly for many conservatives now, in the idea of uh, those appointments acting as a restraint uh, on what conservatives would view as the significant growth of the administrative state. Um, and so there are these sort of, you know, again, it, I, think, I do think it's a, a mixture of the old and the new. And, and quite frankly, you know, it's not clear what particular interest President Trump has in terms of his own um, judicial philosophy or whether the, the, this effort is um, designed as a, as a way to um, reward and, and consolidate uh, support from, for the president from the conservative base. To be frank, you know, with respect to the president and conservatism, I think it was the vehicle through which he achieved and, and satisfied his ego in, in being elected and now on the precipice of a potential re-election. And there's no interest like self-interest in your legacy. And as we know, he grappled with running as a Democrat or reform party and the politics always seem malleable in terms of his, his own identity. But what has stung in, in what was not evidenced in his prior behavior around his candidacies, and he never was elected until the presidency, is the ad hominem um, rhetoric and, you know, the, the, the targeting of, of um, certain classes of people, um, which has been 
ethnic. It's sometimes been driven around the free press uh, or institutions, businesses that he grows to, to dislike or, or want to see um, in some, in some way um, managed to his, to meet his needs, like most recently Twitter and his attack on Twitter. Um, but you know, the, the comp, the, that ad hominem environment um, is one you understand in the context of some of the intersection between the conservatism and populism that can proliferate a kind of uh, nativist um, or demagogic approach. Um, I'm, I'm wondering for the, for, for the voters in the United States and, and you know, not as much for the kind of higherbrow intellectual listeners, but for the voters, how, how concerned are you if, if you've ever been about the preservation of conservatism in this climate of, of vindictive rhetoric and the appearance at these anti-government rallies of sort of Tea Party 2.0 and some elements of bigotry or anti-Semitism or, or um, nativism that have sprung up as, as a result of, of the, the closures of institutions and also as a result of this kind of rhetoric? You know, it is an obvious concern, or it should be an obvious concern um, for anyone. There is um, uh, not necessarily the rhetoric. I think it's personally, I think it's a strong, um, you know, in a, an impressive facet of American society that we tolerate um, extreme rhetoric in ways that European democracies, for example, don't. I think that is an issue of individual freedom, and and we should ultimately have enough. Uh, confidence in our institutions and society and people to be able to bear that burden. But the problem becomes obviously where that rhetoric attaches to institutions. Obviously, in this case, President Trump's willingness to flirt with really quite extreme elements in some cases uh, is a concern. I think one of the challenges, though, that sometimes, um, you know, some in the media, um, some in the center ground of political discourse don't understand or don't appreciate fully enough is the degree to which um, one of the reasons I think quite a few conservative or many conservative voters are willing to tolerate or at least, you know, shrug their shoulders at some of the president's more extreme tendencies in that regard is the sense that they have long felt um, that there was a quieter but no less uh, or, or even more so pervasive a viewpoint on, on, on the part of, um, you know, the, the liberal uh, intelligentsia towards them of this idea in, in the same way that, you know, President Obama is referencing as a candidate of people who cling to their guns and religion and, and, you know, Hillary Clinton's referencing of deplorables, that sense of, you know, not being valued uh, as, you know, in, intelligent members of society and the pain that that caused, that that impulse, and it's not I would say the right conclusion, but gives them a sense that President Trump may be taking things to extreme, but ultimately is playing at a game that has been played for a while now, but is only being lamented because it's targeted towards others. Now, that that, that shouldn't be an excuse, but um, ultimately, I, I'm not too, um, you know, I, I, I'm more optimistic about 
the longer term uh, discourse because simply, you know, the historical example of the United States being an incredibly energetic and dynamic society, both in very positive ways mostly, but also, of course, in negative ways on the fringes, that you look at the 1960s, for example, and the deep social discord then and the rhetoric that was used then um, or the action that was used then between part, differing parts of society, you know, I, I, I think we have these ebbs and flows. It is, of course, unfortunate uh, that President Trump is uh, so um, willing to see his office in, in this sort of regard through the own prism of his, you know, personal interest in, in you know, enjoying throwing mud uh, and not appreciating that it, you know, that it it does affect the institution. I suppose I do believe that, you know, President Trump ultimately in this regard will be um, a, an aberration in that particular sense. In an aberration, and is it a historical aberration? Because in studying the American presidency, not really since Andrew Johnson or Andrew Jackson did you see this fusion of uh, vitriol um, and Twitter is, is as much as he's condemning uh, Twitter's fact-checking prerogative, uh, he, it has been his incubator for um, much of, of, of those convictions, uh, sometimes meandering into outright lies uh, and provocations. But the, it, in American conservatism, not on the fringes, but in what was deemed mainstream, there really isn't a precedent uh, or at least a, a, a an immediate historical precedent for Donald Trump, um, and so I'm wondering, as a, as a student of history, Tom, um, and um, someone who has extensive knowledge in um, conservatism across the Atlantic, uh, from the perspective of Europe and the UK as well as the United States. Um, is it not just a present aberration, but a historical aberration in the sense that both Winston Churchill and Abraham Lincoln would not recognize Donald Trump's brand of conservatism? Well, you know, as you document there with that, that you know, going through the history, clearly we have had these um, ebbs and flows, but the... It is peculiar the degree to which, or it's striking, as it were, to see uh, the difference between how, whatever you think of his politics, you know, George W. Bush behaved in uh, person um, and how uh, Donald Trump behaves as well as all the others. And, and I do think there's something particular about Donald Trump um, in his willingness to do this and his approach to the presidency. But again, I ultimately think uh, it is an aberration. And part of my, my thinking for that is that, you know, even talking to some of the most fervent Donald Trump supporters who really truly believe, you know, the, that what I would suggest is kind of the excesses, the idea of it, you know, some great conspiracy against his presidency um, from the intelligence community, people who endorse these other elements, that even they, uh, when, you know, there are not others you know, who are perhaps fervent supporters of the president are around, will say they really don't like those excesses. They find them uncomfortable. Um, but whether because 
It's the price tag that comes with Trump's policies, the elements they like, they're willing to accept it. But I don't think there's been some massive shift in society that that you know, people embrace this stuff. I think there's a kind of you know group mentality sometimes that celebrates it because people get caught up in the theatrical element that is to some degree is amusing. I'm pretty desensitized to this at this point, as you are covering American politics. But it's it's been shocking to me the extent to which those figures in the conservative movement, and now I'm going to name names, as it were, um, the Federalist Federalist Society to an extent, the Examiner, Daily Caller, but the the conservative media um, in in um, in center right, uh, as it were. Have, have not really been concerned with respect to judicial appointments that the personality and animus of Donald Trump will bleed onto appointees to the bench and, and have had some must be unwavering faith that um, these particular judges who've been appointed in McConnell's unprecedented judicial binge uh, will comport themselves um, as the judiciary would would expect, with with respect and dignity, I just it's it's been stunning to me the extent to which his personal conduct is perceived as not having any potential sway on other elements within that conservative pie. Well, you know, I would disagree with you in the sense that if you look at, for example, uh, President Trump's appointments, the Supreme Court Justice Kavanaugh, um, and um, Forget the other. I've had a mind black kid. The uh, who's the other justice? Gorsuch. Gorsuch, Justice Neil Gorsuch. Uh, that they have shown, I think, more than perhaps some expected, a degree of uh, separation, independence uh, from the president. And with some of the comments from Justice Kavanaugh um, in relation to um, you know the sensitive social conservative cases coming before the court, uh, the court this term that the president has been very um, active on. Um, certainly, Chief Justice Roberts acting as a, you know, a a, a quite public, um, you know, counterbalance to the president in terms of his attacks on the judiciary. Uh, you know, I, I just, I suppose, I haven't seen the evidence yet for for that kind of. Oh, well, I think you're right, Tom, and 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 I think you're right to point to the judicial demeanor, even if there is a uh, in the major cases. Um, that have come to the court unanimity with with respect to the the Trump administration position. I, I just mean the the unknowable of you know you put hundreds of people on the bench and you and some of whom have been rated by ABA, which has historically been a neutral arbiter, as unqualified. And you know what is the recipe ultimately for that? And but I do think you're quite correct in 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 um, not knowing what the long term ramification of that will be. But it's just something that you would think for people who personally consider themselves conservative as much as ideologically they comport themselves that way in their lives and care about family and honoring thy brother's keeper. Uh, you know that, that that would occur to them. Who you know what what signal are they getting from the appointment and um, the bulldozing of those uh, appointments over 
these past years. But let me just more specifically ask you, Tommy, you um, host a a forum with um, really top dignitaries in American political life um, and have seen the evolution of our, our political creed with, with respect to the contemporary conservatism. When you look at the group that formed project Lincoln of former strategists for the old guard Republicans, and then look at the new generation, uh, especially with the federalist website, I'm, how do you um, help us understand the different lines of uh, genealogy, if you will, um, of, of that conservatism, um, seeing the the John Weavers and Steve Schmitz, and now seeing a new wave of uh, conservatism um, that that has been very obsessed with the idea of uh, Trump and Trump's election as um, being tainted as a, as a result of the investigation into Russia and his connection to Russia. Um, I, th- there seems to be a younger generation of conservatives who are uh, very adamant about um, the um, the the plot against Donald Trump um, and the, this idea of um, Donald Trump being a victim um, of uh, some kind of sabotage. It, it's not really just Trump. It's, it's a whole new wave of conservatives who, who have sworn some allegiance to him and, um, and I'm just wondering how you see that as a, as a final question to you, Tom. Yeah, I mean, it, it is certainly true that there is a you know, significant part of the conservative movement now that does regard, um, you know, the, the Mueller inquiry and um, the conduct of investigations against people like Michael Flynn as uh, an effort to unseat a legitimate president. And, and, you know, I would say that we are and continue to learn um, about... Um, investigative shortcomings the, in terms of those efforts. And, and there are some legitimate grievances. The challenge, however, uh, and I think it's one that makes me less, perhaps less concerned about how much influence those people may have on certainly national security policy making, is that those conservatives who are engaged, really, I would say, you know, across the board of whether it be on Capitol Hill, the various spectrum of viewpoints, as much as the political side and, and showing deference or, sh- you know, the patronage relationship for many Republican politicians, or, you know, nearly all Republican politicians with the president because of the particular personal approach with which he views, you know, the Mueller report, et cetera, requires them to, to play up this idea of the great conspiracy. Beyond that, in terms of the kind of foreign policy um, element, even if there are those individuals who do not, for example, support the imposition of new sanctions on Russia, there is pretty common, um, you know, very common 
uh, acceptance that the, the reality of Russian foreign policy under President Putin is one of hostility towards the United States. Uh, and I think that sort of sustaining element is the check against the populist side that generates a lot of buzz, um, but functionally, you know, doesn't define the conservative movement. If you look, if you think about, you know, the quite sizable um, you know, number of conservative leading voters in the military, for example, you know, there is there are very few people in, in the military who would suggest that that Russia is anything but an adversary. So there is this conservative populist element, but I also think actually, you know, the the the, the below the surface element um, is is more strident on Russia. And and I also think actually in terms of policy, one of the more surreal things about the Trump administration is as much as President Trump presents this narrative of, you know, why couldn't, can't we be friends with President Putin? You know, the policymaking apparatus towards Russia, um, you know, the Ukraine issue aside, but certainly there with lethal weapons, um, more aggressive intelligence operations, more aggressive contesting of Russia in Syria, um, you know, functionally, um, the government apparatus is, is not uh, under a Republican president acting towards Russia in a way that would raise, I think, many concerns um, that we've somehow you know, closed our eyes to Putin's reality. E- even if the president has in many ways, uh, and ultimately his policies, I don't think reflect that in most cases. And you think that, Tom, the successive generation of Trump um, the the media establishment that has supported him and the political networks um, that would that would breed the successor to Trump, whether he wins re-election or not, you you do think that it will deviate from his very particular political personality, that it will be more either in the in the W. Bush form or in um, a um, mold that is con- more conciliatory um, and, and more spiritually uplifting. I, I do. And I, and I also think one of the things that will help with this is the degree to which, you know, many conservatives, I think, quite fairly griped against, I think, what, you know, they viewed as a... Um, too dominant media interpretation that as much as Russia did act to try and elect President Trump, um, that, that action delivered Trump the, the presidency. I mean, I don't believe that. I don't believe that impact threw him over the line. I think a lot of conservatives don't. And and there was a sort of gripe there that, that you know, that was seen to dilute, that understanding was seen to dilute their um, choices that they made. Um, and so, you know, there's this particular Trump personality factor and electoral factor that flows with Russia. And once he's gone, whether that be, you know, in January next year or four years after, I think things will shift to and you know, a return to what we would more commonly understand as, you know, decency in, in at least in terms of rhetoric from from the Oval Office. And and conservatism in principle and practice, Tom Rogan, host of the McLaughlin Group, on which I've been honored to appear. Um, Thank you, Tom, for for having me, and I'm so delighted to welcome you today. Thank you very much, Alexander. Really enjoyed that. Thank you, Tom.